I think all of us, whether we're married or not, would say that marriage is a puzzle. Even if it's just observing others in marriage or observing marriage around us. And certainly if we live marriage, a puzzle, a contradiction, almost a, a paradox because on the one hand, we've all seen in one way or another how painful marriage can be. It can be such a source of grief, of hurt, tears, anger, even hatred. It can cause us to even see ourselves as becoming this Wounded and spiteful and depressed and defeated person that we don't even know who we are. And yet, this very same thing called marriage can be such a source of joy, of companionship, of this best friend, of this source of fun and life at its best. It seems like a lot of people find the pain, but not quite as many seem to find the joy. It seems maybe it's harder to keep, harder to find that good news intended in marriage. Uh, a healthy marriage is not easy. Whoa. Well, that's not supposed to be there. We'll go on. Um, and I need to say to you, we're going to look at three um, sermons on marriage, starting today and for the next two weeks. I've called it DNA of a healthy marriage. And we're going to look at the three key scriptures uh, that if I look at the whole Bible and we want to talk about marriage, where do we go? There's three main passages. And we're going to look at one of those each week. And they work together and they give us a, a, a more complete picture of marriage. But before we do that, I need to say something to you, and that is that there are no quick answers. To find marriage and all we want it to be and all it can be and all God intended it to be, there are no quick answers. And I need to say that today because we all have caught a virus and we don't even know we've caught it. And it's this virus that's in our air today. And the virus is, on the one hand, everything should be quick and easy. There should be a pill or a solution or a class or something to make it easy. And we keep waiting for that. And it doesn't exist for marriage. So, so please understand that and prepare yourself that it's not going to be easy what I'm going to say. And we also, this virus today says, somebody else is going to fix it for me. And we wait for somebody to fix it. And whether that's the boss or that's government or that's the church or it's the pastor or whatever, somebody else fix it for me. And that's not reality either. Even though it's so common as a concept today, Please face that reality that our culture is lying to us when it says there should be an easy answer and somebody else should fix this for me. 
It's not somebody else's job to fix our marriages. It's our job. And it takes work. It will take hard work. There's things we're going to have to do that aren't easy and we may not want to do them. But it's part of what it takes. And it's going to take change. We aren't going to be able to do everything we've always done. We aren't going to be able to hold on to all the attitudes we've always held on to. We're going to have to adopt some new perspectives. We're going to have to see some things in a new way. We're going to have to stop doing some things that we're comfortable doing. And we may have to start doing some things that at first are not comfortable. That's part of the hard work of experiencing a good marriage. And it's going to take perseverance. We're going to have to work at it and then work at it again. And then work at it again. And it is a living thing that we can never take for granted. We will always need to be working at it. I had somebody this week come who'd seen the marriage type was coming up and say, Oh, Jim, do we have to? I understand. And I understand some of you sitting there have only seen the pain. And I understand some of you have walked the path of divorce, and some of you have probably given up on marriage. But it isn't going to go away, and we need to talk about it. And I believe God has buried treasure there for us, if we'll find it and dig it up. And for those of you who are young and haven't gone there yet, I hope that these sermons can lay out for you some signposts of what to look for in that person you're going to join your life to. Because they will make all the difference in the world. And so we're going to talk about that DNA of a healthy marriage. Because there are some key things pointed out in Scripture. And in a sense, the passage we're going to look at today lays out some core concepts that the next two Sundays are really just going to amplify in the New Testament. But they're the concepts that are buried way back in the beginning in the very first marriage. And these concepts make all the difference. If we see this is what marriage is about, it makes all the difference in the world. Not that it won't still be work, not that there still won't need to be change and perseverance and all those things I just said, but they make all the difference in the world. Because God has given us a design for marriage, if we'll follow it, it really does work. We see it in the very beginning. In, in Genesis 1... Now, remember, okay, we're the seven days of creation, or six days of creation. And every day God gets done, and he, he builds the first part, and then he builds on that, and then he builds on that. And every day when God is done, if you read through Genesis 1, he says, that's good. Day 1, that's good. Day 2, he looks at what he's added, that's good. Day three, that's good. You're seeing a pattern. He goes through all five days. He looks at everything he's done. And his summary appraisal is, that's good. Until day six. And on day six, he creates Adam and Eve. And he creates marriage. And he finishes creation. 
And for the first time, God says, that's very good. Genesis 1.31. That's very good. Now, I realize some of you and what you've experienced in life would like to sit there and say, wrong. God, you, you missed it. But I think we would all say, God's not wrong very often, is he? He's never wrong. So God saw something. We may have missed it. We may not have gotten it. But God saw, can I say, what marriage can be? He saw this design, this what he had created, and he says, that can be, parentheses, very good. And that's what I want to hold out for us. That God isn't wrong. And whatever we may have seen, whatever we may have seen in our parents as we grew up, whatever we may have experienced, and it may not have been very good, that doesn't deny the reality that it can be very good. And in a sense, our wish is reasonable. We all wish, well, I wish it was. And God says, you're right, because it can be the very thing you wish for. So how do we get there? How do we experience this very good marriage? I believe God lays out the core of it right there in the beginning. In the next chapter of Genesis 2, in that first marriage, we see a, a design, if I can call it, a design that if we'll follow it, thousands of years later, that design still works. Now, I want to start in verse 18, and I'm going to read a couple verses, and then we're going to talk through what happens here, because I think this is just a fascinating story. Hollywood could not improve on this. No joke. First of all, in verse 18, so God's done his creation. Then God looks on it in the midst of this and says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So God looks at Adam, and at this point, in this snapshot, Eve has not been created yet. So all the rest of creation has been done, and God has created Adam, and he looks at this and says, oops, wait a minute. And just as I said, remember when God said this is very good, that was the first time he ever used it? This is the first time he ever says in all of creation, this is not good. First time. When he sees Adam alone. Now if you keep reading, what God does is he's an incredible teacher. Now he's going to make a point to Adam, but he doesn't tell Adam this. What he does say is, Adam, i got a task for you. God has already reached his conclusion. This is not good for Adam to be alone, but God needs Adam to understand that. So what does God do? Adam, i got a job for you. I'm going to bring all the animals here, and you name them. Adam's like, oh, okay, I got this. So God brings all the animals by, and Adam's naming them. You're a giraffe. You are an elephant. You are an otter. You are an eagle. And we go through all that. But God had a point. Because when Adam's all done, we're told one summary. But for Adam, no suitable 
helper was found. That companion that Adam needed, God knew before we started this, Adam needed a companion. Guess who also knows now? Adam. Wait a minute, God. Question. I didn't see anybody in that parade that looked anything like me. What about me? Adam now knows what God already knew. That Adam needs a companion. And so we know in the rest of the story that God makes Adam go to sleep, takes a rib from Adam, and makes Adam that companion that God knew he needed. And Adam now knows he needs. And then he brings her, Eve, to Adam. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I had a Hebrew professor in seminary. I'll never forget him explaining this verse. He said, our English does not do justice to the this is. Because the Hebrew word that is used there is a word of exclamation. Adam sees Eve, and what he says is, wow, this is it. And I kid you not, that's what the Hebrew word means. But remember, he's already named all the animals and thought, there's nobody for me. And he wakes up, and there is. And Eve is walking towards him, and he says, wow, this is the one I needed. This is it. And that marriage is there, and that's the point at which God says, now this is very good. It goes from not good to very good in marriage, companionship. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one. We have that first marriage. Now, I said there's some core concepts in this design that we need to capture, and one of them is that alone is not good. The first time God had said something was not good, Adam was alone. And there's a sense in which we understand that because we're like God, aren't we? Remember, part of what we're taught in Genesis is that God creates us in His image. We're like God. We're his children. Well, what is one of the key aspects about God? He is relational. He exists as three in one. He lives in a relationship. He's all about relationship. We talk about how he died on the cross so we can have relationship with him again. God is relational. Well, guess what? We look like him. We're like him. We are also relational beings. We're not designed to go through life alone. And God said, I want to give you the ideal way to deal with that, and that is a companion who walks through all of life with you all life long. You get closer and tighter, and you understand each other better, and it is that companion so you are not alone. Now, I know, and, and I thought hard about talking about that, because I know some of you in this room are alone. And there's a lot of circumstances that have caused that, and the amazing thing is that God sees our need and in our aloneness, He can meet those needs in other ways. He cares. 
and I'm not in any way trying to denigrate or attack or anything negative about that aloneness. We are there at a time and for a time. But it doesn't change that design that God created in general for most people. And it's interesting, culture after culture around the world, it is that male and female, that companion for life, that we keep coming back to. And there are exceptions, and I acknowledge those right now, so please hear that if you're single today. But it doesn't cause us to bypass that plan that God has laid out in general, which we see in Adam and Eve. And that is how we don't need to be alone. We have that partner for life. And that's what God intended us to find in marriage. But how do we make that marriage work so that it is very good and we have that companion for life? Well, there's two words that God uses there in 2.18. He says it's not good for the man to be alone. And then he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. I want to take those two words and I want to take the second one first. Our English Bibles, a lot of the translations say a helper suitable. And I know when I was young, that was very often interpreted as somebody who was good enough. And it was the woman's job to be good enough for the man. But that's not at all what the Hebrew word that's used there means. What it means, literally, is someone who fits the other. Someone who completes the other. Those are the Hebrew concepts. Someone who complements the other. The concept of the Hebrew language is that person which fills in what is missing in me. I think the the best example I ever get in my head is two jigsaw puzzle pieces. They're not identical. They complement each other. One fills in the gaps in the other. That's the Hebrew word for suitable that is used here. It is someone who fits Adam, not who is the same as Adam. It's someone who completes him. One of the things that that recognizes is we're not the same. In fact, if we're going to complement each other, if we're going to fill in each other's gaps, we're going to be different. And that we need those differences. We joke about it all the time, don't we? You know, opposites attract. We joke about our differences. And then we fight about our differences. And then we hate our differences. And we struggle with being different. But please understand conceptually, logically. Don't think about your spouse. Just We'll keep this at a theoretical safe level. It would make sense, wouldn't it, if you add people, that top-notch Super Bowl-bound team that plays at U.S. Bank Stadium, how we still allowed Carrie as a Green Bay fan to be at this church, I don't understand. But the Vikings have been drafting for three days now, and they haven't been looking for players who are just like the strong players they already have, have they? They have been looking for the players who will fill in 
what they're missing. And we would say, well, duh, that's smart, isn't it? And God says, guess what? I want to match you up with a player who will fill in where you're missing. A suitable companion. One who fits you, who completes you, who fills in. Well, the key to that, obviously, is how we view our differences. How do you view the differences in your marriage? Do we appreciate them? Do we value them? Or do we just see them as a source of frustration? I've confessed to you before, my goal in the first years of marriage was to eradicate them. I tried very hard to transform my wife so she looked and acted like me. God and her made sure that didn't work. Because I would have been a poor person for it and I would have missed God's design. And what God finally got through to me was, you know what? Those differences are a good thing for me. Once I got past the frustration because she didn't think my way or do it my way or like what I liked. And I think that's where a lot of us get tripped up, isn't it? We only see the differences as a source of frustration. And we don't stop to appreciate what is God trying to add to my life? How is God trying to fill in my gaps? I haven't been seeing that. I've just been letting these differences be a source of conflict and argument. Too often we focus on those differences and how our spouse is wrong, which is obvious, isn't it? They don't do it our way. They don't like what we like. They're not a morning person. They squeeze the toothpaste tube in the middle. You name it. They like Green Bay. Whatever it might be. And some of those differences we make really big, don't we? And those differences start to divide us. I want to challenge you today. I want to challenge you to change how you look at those differences if you're married. And I want you to challenge you as you're looking for a marriage. It's okay for somebody to be different. How is God trying to enrich you? How are those differences that could be a frustration... How could you also change your perspective and see those differences as a gift? What is God trying to add to your life? How is He trying to bring balance to that relationship, that marriage? What is He trying to add? Start looking at those differences as good things. Before we leave the differences, I do want to add one more challenge. Because I see sometimes we use those differences as an excuse to stick the knife in and turn it. I mean, we, we don't have to be married very long, and we learn the buttons of our spouse, don't we? And we've also learned that we can play the trump card of, well, I'm different from you, and we can play it at just the right time and really push their button. 
and just set them off. And sometimes I think we do that intentionally. Sometimes we use our differences as a license to make our spouse suffer. I think we need to be different. And God designed us to be different. But I do think in love, we also need to be sensitive to our differences. And we need to learn how to control our differences. Funny story, safe story. My wife will not kill me for telling this. We were just married. She really doesn't love to get up in the morning. And I was raised on a farm, so I do. So we were just married, living in this old house in East Tennessee, and I had a little shop in the basement under our bedroom. <laughs> now, I thought from my background, 8 in the morning, come on, it's Saturday, 8 in the I've held myself back. And so about 8 a.m., I lied off the table saw right under the bed. Uh, come on, we're different. I got to work. Well, I learned, because we're still married today, okay? So I learned that I may be different and I may like the morning, but there are some controls I need to put around my differences. And there's some other things I need to be doing at 8 o'clock other than starting the table saw under the bedroom. And we need to be sensitive to our differences, not to make them go away, but to make sure we really are blessing each other through our differences not driving each other nuts. Well, we got to go back to the other word, the first word, actually, and that is companionship. Now, again, i got to go back to the Hebrew here because our English Bibles 50 years ago, it was translated helper, and we read into that servant. So women were told you need to be the servant of your husband. And I, I've never understand why, but the f women in our culture have not been extremely excited about that. I personally, I thought it was a good interpretation. <laughs> but that's not what the Hebrew is. That's not what was written in the original Bible. It's not servant. It's not slave. The word that is used there is a sense of someone who comes beside you to help you. And here's the really fascinating tidbit, and some of you have heard this. That Hebrew word is used 19 times in the Old Testament. 15 times it is used of how the mighty God comes beside us to help us. This isn't a slave who is inferior to us helping a superior. If you literally want to take it, it is someone who is stronger Women, you can give me a quarter at the door. <laughs> it is someone who is stronger and more powerful who comes beside that one which is weaker and needs help. That's that suitable helper. That companion. I always think of the, 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 the word for Holy Spirit in the, in the New Testament is paraclete, someone who's called beside you. And the Spirit walks with us through life, beside us, to help us. That's the exact same concept that's used here in, in this helper. It's someone who comes beside us to help us through life. 
And you see, that's the very thing God saw Adam didn't have when he said, this is not good. Adam's on his own. And what Adam needs is someone who will be his companion, complimenting him, filling in what's lacking, to walk beside him and help him with life. That's what we need. As spouses, we are each other's teammates. We are to be beside each other, with each other, there to help us. There to help each other. Notice the focus of the helper is not me. It's that other, that spouse, that one I'm walking with, to come beside them. It's not about what I want, it's what they want and what they need. And we're going to talk a lot about that next week. Because we are different. And that also means that what we need will not look the same for ourselves as it will for the other. But we've come beside that one to help them. Just as they've come beside to help me. And that's how we are to work together. I had that picture up. The five love languages. I would really recommend this book. It's a Christian book. But it talks about this concept that we have different languages. And our spouse may not have the same language we do. And so many problems in marriage are that I'm speaking love in my language and you're saying I'm not hearing anything. It's because I'm not speaking love in your language. And so part of the challenge is how do I be a helper for you? Well, that won't look like how you would be a helper for me. I have to learn to be a helper in how you need it to be. And that's what that book is all about. So we are to complement each other and we are to be that companion who is there for each other. Now, i got to go quick. There's one other concept in here. And that is that we're to be united. We are to be one team. God points out how Adam left his family and joined to his new wife, and they were one. Now remember, this is a patriarchal society. The woman was added to the man's family, but God says, no, nope, this isn't about that patriarchal family. The first priority is that that man and that woman are one, and there's nothing between them. They are glued together. I remember years ago hearing a sermon on, wedding, on marriage about how important it is to be one and glued together and you can't let anything get in between. I'm a woodworker. And if I'm going to glue two pieces of wood together, they have to match. And we're complementary. So we fill in each other. We've got a good match going. But you can't have any dirt in there. No sawdust, nothing else. Or it'll weaken the joint and it'll break. But if you give me two surfaces that match and you give me a clean surface and a good wood glue, I can glue those together so that wood will have to break somewhere else because that joint will never break. That's when two people are glued together with nothing in between and they become one. And that we have to understand that is a priority. And the truth is we're so busy today we let other stuff come in between, don't we? It can be work. 
It can be hobbies. It can be other stuff that's important to us. It can be all kinds of other things. But unintentionally, we let them come in there and we try and then glue us together and it doesn't stick and we wonder why. It's because that joint wasn't clean and there was something between. And that's the final challenge out of this Genesis passage. We need to be complementary and we need to be companions who are there for each other. Thick and thin, good and bad, hard and easy, 24-7, count on me, I'll be there for you if nobody else is. And then we're going to glue each other together and we're going to really glue each other together with nothing in between. Now next week we're going to look at Ephesians and those differences and how all that works. And then the third week we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. And, and what does real love look like today? Because the word's used everywhere. But we understand less about love today than I think we ever have. And we're going to talk about that. <clears throat> Marriage can be a great thing. And it's not a magical, it's not a mystery. It's understanding and doing the work to make it work. I hope you'll accept that challenge. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this thing you've given us called marriage. At times it's not fun. And I know that breaks your heart too. But at times it can be wonderful. And Father, I pray you would help us all learn and experience what makes it good, very good. So that we can live that in our lives, our marriages, our homes, the marriages we create and choose down the road. Help us, Father, to understand your design and to build it into our marriages. In your son's name.